morning, church family. Good morning. Let me, let me try that one more time. I get it's a holiday weekend. Good morning, church family. It is good to be with you all. Some of you, just like me, on your way into the church parking lot, noticed a couple of handfuls full of really good-looking motorcycles. There's a group here from Tennessee that drove down here just to worship with you all this morning. Let's give those men and women a round of applause. And I, I think, if my memory serves me correctly, that the Tennessee Volunteers still have a football program. Is that right? Go Tigers! Go Tigers! Go Tigers! Um, God bless you guys for being here. It's a joy to have you with us. We really appreciate you making the drive today. Uh, this weekend especially is a weekend that I really appreciate and value. Uh, I am proud to live in a nation where men and women rise to the occasion. And this weekend we remember men and women who have risen to the greatest occasion possible, the defense of our freedom right here in the United States of America. Let's give those men and women a round of applause. And, and I was thinking about this this morning. Our armed forces do not just defend freedom in the United States. We are worldwide defenders of freedom. And so I want to I take a moment to pray over the families whose loved ones really gave all to rise to the occasion of defending freedom for us that live here in this great nation, but also for those nations across the world that those men and women have been defenders of freedom in. Let's bow together this morning. Lord, I love you. I thank you so much to live in a nation, just like I said earlier, where men and women rise to the occasion and defend freedom, sometimes to the point that they give their very lives to protect the liberty that we have right here in the United States of America and the freedoms that they defend all over the entire world. And God, some people this morning have shown up to churches heavy-hearted because their loved ones have fallen in the, in the line of battle. And I ask that your spirit would empower those family members. And I ask that your spirit would empower the friends who fought alongside those men and women who gave their lives. And I pray that today would be a day that those individuals feel honored and the friends of the fallen and the families of the fallen feel remembered that those men and women's legacies do live on every single day right here in this great nation. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for those men and women in our armed forces. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. I want to do one last thing to commemorate Memorial Day. If you have served in the armed forces ever, uh, would you please stand so that we can recognize you and give you a round of applause? Just take a moment to stand. We honor you. Well, I appreciate you being with us today. Uh, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 6. I'm continuing our sermon series called Breaking the Vice Grip, Biblical Solutions for Your Toughest Problems. And in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, Solomon, who wrote the Proverbs, talks about seven deadly sins. And um, there, was a, there was a church uh, theologian about 400 A.D., who looked at this section of Scripture, Pontius Evagrius was the guy's name, and he recognized that behind these seven deadly sins 
were eight deadly thoughts. And so he recorded these eight deadly thoughts. And over time, those eight deadly thoughts turned into what we recognize in the church as the seven deadly sins. So I've got Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 on the screen for you. These are not the seven deadly sins that the church kind of historically recognizes as the seven deadly sins. Some of these kind of can combine almost into one. And so the church added uh, lust, gluttony, and sloth. But let me read this to you this morning. The Bible says, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So I think in there you could probably find four or five of the seven. And we're going to preach through all seven. Last week was lust. This week is going to be gluttony. Now, last week I kind of set the stage for how I believe men and women can get entangled in these kinds of sins. And I want to mention that very briefly just to remind you of how a man or a woman can become entangled with a sin to the point that they're overwhelmed and even controlled by it. The first truth in life that you need to remember is found in Job chapter 5 and verse 7. And the Bible says, As a man is born into trouble, as surely as sparks fly upward. I wanted to give you a scripture that talks about the trouble and toil we face in life that's not usually thought of. Job 5, 7 is a good one. Job 14, 1 is another one. You probably know John chapter 16 and verse 33. Jesus says, These words I have spoken to you so that you can have peace. In this world, you won't possibly have tribulation. You won't likely have tribulation. You're going to have tribulation in this world. We live in a cursed, sin-sick culture that's going to lead to struggle and trial and tribulation in your life. And when we are struggling with pain, the natural human tendency is to recoil from that pain and try to avoid it or distract ourselves from it or to numb it in our lives. And it is right when we're trying to seek pain relief that the enemy brings temptation our way. What the enemy tries to do when we're trying to avoid or distract ourselves from pain or numb the pain is appeal to us with some sinful type of behavior, whether it's lust or like today we're going to be talking about gluttony or wrath or sloth or envy or greed. Any of those things, the enemy is going to try to make appealing to you in the midst of your attempts at relieving the pain that you're going to feel in life. And if we choose a sinful behavior to relieve pain, the next knee-jerk reaction is to hide it. Because we know we did something wrong. We've been made in the image of God. Eternity has been set in our hearts. Romans chapter 2 talks about us having a conscience. And when we do something wrong, that conscience within us and the Holy Spirit's conviction over us causes us to want to hide. And we've been doing this since the Garden of Eden. This is Genesis chapter 3 and verse 10. Adam and Eve commit sin. I've got this on the screen for you this morning. And what's their first reaction? They sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. And then Adam hears God walking around in the garden. So what's Adam do? He hides. And God walks up to Adam. He's like, dude, what, what are you doing? Why are you hiding? And Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. That tendency to hide, to want to keep secret a shameful thing that I've done, is what I would define as shame. Anything that I've done that I feel like I should hide. So let me show you how this cycle looks. I kind of mapped this out. In, in a step-by-step kind of cycle 
that I want you to get. First, Job 5-7, John 16-33. In this life, you are going to have pain for certain. You're, there are three types of people on the planet. People who are in the middle of a painful storm, people who are fixing to be in the middle of a painful storm, or people who have just come out of a painful storm. All right? And when we're, when we're feeling that pain, the t- natural tendency is to avoid, numb, or distract The enemy makes an option available to us that's sinful. If we become entangled in that sin, the knee-jerk reaction, just like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.10, is to hide, and the hiding only leads to more pain. And if we get caught on this cycle for long enough, eventually the sin and shame in our life overpower us and begin to control our lives. And I drew a line through that word natural because we have to move from allowing our natural selves to control us into a lifestyle where our spiritual life controls us. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So when we think gluttony, uh, normally the first thing that comes to your mind is what came to my mind, which is honestly in my mind a lot, which is food. So you guys might remember a couple of months ago I was talking about our uh, marriage retreat that we do in February, usually over Valentine's Day weekend, And I was talking about it, and I referred to the marriage retreat as Thanksgiving, not as the marriage retreat. Why would I do that? Because I got food on my brain, y'all. All All right, so food has been something that's caused problems for human beings. Again, I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis. In chapter 3, in verse 6, Eve is being deceived by the serpent. And as that deception is happening, Eve sees that the fruit of the tree was good for food... And pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some and ate it. And it's not all Eve's responsibility. Adam, who was the spiritual leader of that dyad, was standing right there with her. Of that couple, Adam was right there with her. She turns and gives him some. He's apparently just sitting there, tight-lipped, watching this all go on, like so many men are in our culture today, just silently kind of sitting by and letting things happen to families. Adam's sitting right there, letting this all go on. Eve takes a bite, hands it to Adam, he takes a bite, and the first couple in the history of the world committed sin. Now, here's what's interesting about this. I think about the garden a lot. Uh, And I think about it a lot probably during this time of year because you're doing a lot of what I'm doing right now, which is pulling weeds out of flower beds and putting pine straw in flower beds and planting flowers. And my back is hurting and I'm sweating like crazy and the whole time I'm going, Adam... Why did you have to eat the stinking fruit of the tree, man? There wouldn't be any weeds or thistles or thorns or any of this stuff. It'd all be beautiful all the time. And I think, too, we, we just recently got a, our first tomato plant, if not our first ever, probably our first in 10 years. Kirsten and I have been married 12, so it feels like at least 10, probably since we've had one. And all of y'all know, and I want to see a show of hands, how many knows the truth that homegrown tomatoes taste way better than store-bought tomatoes? Come on, somebody. All right? So I imagine that that difference is like the difference between the food in the garden before the curse and the food in the garden after the curse. Like a tomato in the Garden of Eden before curse, you think your homegrown tomatoes are fire? Man, can you imagine what those things would have tasted like? So in my, in my estimation, it is not that Adam and Eve were physically hungry for food, and that's how the enemy could tempt them into sinning. It's that Adam and Eve had more than enough, and it still wasn't enough to satisfy them. And that really is bigger than just the sin of gluttony, eating too much. 
That's the sin of what I would call overindulgence. Overindulgence. And that really is going to be the core of what I want to talk to you about today. Overindulgence happens whenever I have more than enough and it is still not enough to satisfy me. And this is something that the scriptures take very, very seriously. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 2. This is Solomon again. But he actually puts it like this. You should put a knife to your throat if you're given to gluttony. Now that's extremely, extremely strong language. But this really echoes what Jesus said to us last week about lust. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. So if your right eye causes you to sin, what does Jesus say to do? Pluck that sucker out. Or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better to go into heaven maimed than into hell whole. This is that same kind of a vibe. And and here's what the scripture teaches us. We need to be prepared to do whatever radical thing we need to do to get rid of the sin in our life. The Bible's approach to getting sin out of our life is radical. That's what Solomon is saying here. If there is a part of your heart that is overindulging in an area and sinning, you've got to be willing to get radical of, uh, in, in terms of getting that particular sin out of your life. Be willing to hold nothing back. That's the strength of this language. It's figurative, but that's the intent. The other thing I want, you, I want to remind you of here is that we need to view the sinfulness in our life as though it is life-threatening. And I think in church, there are certain sins that we view as acceptable. There are certain sins that we view as acceptable. We're going to talk about greed at one point, and I think that's an acceptable or a lesser sin than something like lust or adultery or homosexuality. It's like, man, everybody kind of struggles with greed. I don't tithe maybe as much as I should, or I buy a little bit more material things than I actually need. But since kind of everybody's doing it, no harm, no foul. I think gluttony, overindulgence, is a really similar thing. It just feels like kind of everybody does it. And so it's not something that we really feel like we have to take seriously. And the Bible would tell us the exact opposite. You need to take the sinfulness and the overindulgence in your life as seriously as though it is life-threatening. In other words, if you were walking around with a terminal diagnosis and you knew that you had to do some radical things to cure that particular malady, you'd live your life a lot differently than you're living it today. This is what the Scriptures are teaching you to do. Be willing to do something radical about the sin in your life and stop assuming that the sin in your life is not life-threatening. It absolutely is. The Scriptures teach us two other things about gluttony. The first is gluttony or overindulgence is about your heart set and your mindset. If you're in Proverbs 23, just stay right there. Go to the 19th verse. Uh, Solomon kind of finishes this thought later on in in the 23rd chapter of Proverbs. And he says, really, overindulgence is about the condition of your heart. So let me read this to you. The Bible says, listen, my son, be wise and set your heart. If you've got your Bible, you might underline that. Set your heart. That's your heart set, and it's similar to your mindset. Set your heart on the right path. In life, there is a right way to live and a wrong way to live. And if you'll live rightly, you'll be blessed. And if you'll live in the wrong way, you're going to be cursed. Galatians 6 talks about that. Whatever you sow, 
That's what you're going to reap. You sow into the Spirit, you're going to reap blessing. You sow into the flesh, you're going to reap curse. So set your heart on the right path. Don't join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Here's what's tough about gluttony. It appeals to, and overindulgence, it's going to appeal to a felt flesh or natural need. And this is what James, the brother of Jesus, talks about in the letter that he writes to the churches. In James chapter 1 and verse 14, James says, we are, we are led away and we sin when we are led away by our own evil desires. And when I, when I say have your heart set on the right path, what, I, what I'm really meaning there is have your desires set on the right path. When I talk about my heart in our culture, usually what we're talking about is something that we love. And what I believe the Bible is teaching us here is that we need to make sure the things we love are the things that Scripture is leading us to fall more deeply in love with. Not the things our natural self wants to fall more deeply in love with. Those aren't always mutually exclusive, but they can be. And it's also possible for men and women who have sat in churches almost their whole entire lives to lose their love of the Lord and replace it with the love of something in the world. Jesus challenges a church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4. And you can jot that down in your notes and review later. I don't have it on the screen. But in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, Jesus tells the church in Ephesus, you have lost or left your first love. You love God. You love the things of God. You were gospel-centered. You were living and loving the things that God demanded and designed you to live and love. But over time, your love for those things has grown cold. And now you no longer love the things that you used to be in love with that you should be in love with. And that's what God is calling you more deeply into today. Hey, remember your first love. Do you remember the brokenness you felt before you were baptized into Christ and the Spirit transformed your life? You remember how good that felt, how encouraged you were when you walked into a church building and listened to a sermon or heard singing or were greeted by people that encouraged you, how good that felt when you were totally in love with God and the things that God's designed you to be in love with. But the enemy is working on you so, so slowly and so, so steadily. And he wants you to get to a place where walking in the church doesn't cause that same feeling of love and joy and peace. And instead we're looking around going, man, so-and-so didn't shake my hand like they were supposed to this morning. Or man, Trent got, that's the first time Trent's made a mistake, but he did get one Bible reference wrong today. And get distracted by it. And it's not about loving and desiring and having my heart set on the Lord. It becomes having my heart set on things of the world. Not only is it about our heart set, it's also about our mindset. This is Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. We had one of our Bible readers read this this morning. The Apostle Paul counsels us about overindulgence, and he says it's not just about having your heart or your love or your desire set on the right things. It's about having your mind set on the right things. Paul says this, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, that's kind of overindulgence, gluttony, and their glory is in their shame. Now they're no longer ashamed at their shame, they're proud of their shame. 
And that's this, that's this really powerful shift that happens when I've been living in sin long enough, pretty soon it feels okay and even justifiable. That's the condition of these people. How did they get there? Their mind became so consumed with earthly things, they really lost their heart having been set on the things of God. And now their mind is consumed with the things of the world. So you have to ask yourself, what is your default setting? And this is, the, this is where I think it's easiest to see this. When you are stressed out or you're hungry or you have an unmet physical need, you're tired, you're lonesome and you need some cuddle time or whatever it might be, all right, where does your mind go? Does it go to the LSU Tigers football coaching staff and the drama that's happening there? Mine sometimes does, all right, to be honest with you. Does it go to your refrigerator? Is that where your mind goes? Is it, what's my next meal going to be? What's the next time my appetite can get satisfied? Does it go to the liquor cabinet? And one glass of wine that night before bed, does it turn into six or seven? Where does your def- what is your default mental programming in the midst of a crisis situation? That's going to tell you where your mind is set. I hope, and where my family and I try to get our minds to go, and we certainly don't win this battle every time, is, is that our minds go to the Lord. And I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. But let me give you some things that I believe are symptoms of overindulgence. How do I know if in my life I'm struggling with overindulgence? And it can be hard kind of to see the sin we struggle with. Sometimes I say it's only fish that don't know it's water in which they swim. And if you're really in the middle of a struggle, sometimes you can't see it. So the symptoms of gluttony or overindulgence, and I've got these on the screen for you this morning if, you, if, if you're following along, and I want you to write these down, okay? The first symptom of overindulgence is joylessness. If it is hard for you to find true, authentic joy in life, you may be battling with overindulgence. Think about this. We're raising kids. And there are a lot of times our kids are involved in athletic activities. You've probably heard something like this before. And no matter who wins or loses, everybody gets a trophy. And when everybody gets a trophy, winning and losing has no meaning. And so kids get on the field, and I'm like, hey, give it your best. Put your ball glove on. Don't lay down in the field. Don't do somersaults on the field. Um, Don't throw your glove at me when I tell you don't do somersaults on the field. Why would a child want to listen to what I'm doing, what I'm asking them to do, if they know at the end they're going to get the same reward as the people who really do mind and behave and win the game? So as an adult, it's the same thing. If we never restrain the desires of our flesh and surrender them to the obedience of Christ and allow ourselves sex or alcohol or food or television or social media or shopping or gambling or sports. If we, if we allow ourselves that whenever we want, however we want it, as often as we want it, pretty soon things lose their value. And everything starts to become very equal and very uh, uh, bland. And, 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 and nothing really promotes joy. And if I'm used to getting it how I want it, when I want it, where I want it, with a very le- small level of effort, pretty soon... I start to feel like the world revolves around me and that I am the center of the universe. And if people cut me off in traffic, it's their problem. When really, maybe somebody cuts me off in traffic because they're rushing to the hospital to visit a sick relative that's nearing death. 
Or if a cashier's moving incredibly slow and really doesn't have joy and, and expediency when she's checking me out at, a, at the grocery store, it ruins my day when maybe she's just had a traumatic breakup or didn't get accepted in college that she applied for or is nearing financial ruin and feeling totally dejected and hopeless about her job. That, that entitlement means I lose the ability to get in touch with the world around me and think of myself as the absolute center of my whole universe. So what do I start to do if I can't have joy and I feel like I'm the center of the universe? Every little thing that doesn't go exactly like I want it to go, I make a comment about it. And I become kind of this complaining, gossiping, negative, really difficult to be around individual that just can't be pleased. And then, I, and then I, what I will start to feel is this deep sense of fatigue. Why? Because I've been designed for satisfaction, just not satisfaction here on the, on the earth, to find satisfaction vertically instead of horizontally. And when I can't find satisfaction, I am on a never-ending, all-out quest to be satisfied, except I'm continuing to look for satisfaction in things that were never designed to satisfy anyway. And we call this kind of uh, fatigue, this kind of spiritual fatigue, depression most of the time. I think that's really something that people can deal with and not even be aware. There is a huge spiritual component to feeling just beat up and uninterested in activities that I've always found interest and joy in and totally disconnected from the people that I love simply because I'm struggling with overindulgence. So what is the biblical solution to overindulgence? I've got this on the screen. I want it in big, bold letters. The biblical solution to overindulgence is self-control. Now, when most people hear me say self-control right here, they think to themselves, okay, what that means is I have to leave certain things I desire on the table. Because not everything I desire is from the Lord or of the Spirit or designed by God to fulfill. And so I've got to take some of the things I desire and I've got to table them. And I've just got to be willing to surrender those desires and deal with the pain and agony that I'm going to feel. Because those particular needs are not going to get met. And I think it's the, I think it's the opposite. And C.S. Lewis, I'm going to give you a C.S. Lewis quote that really speaks to this. I think it's not that we desire too much and have to surrender those exaggerated desires to the Lord, I think it's that we desire too little and seek for satisfaction in things that God never intended to satisfy us anyway. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis from a a text called The Weight of Glory. And um, I want to read this to you. If you want to reference it later, you can go online and watch our sermon online. Uh, So here's this quote. Think about this, church. If we consider... The unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. Listen to this. When infinite joy, let me say that again. Infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, we simply can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. If we're seeking satisfaction in the flesh, then the truth is we are far too easily 
pleased. And that's my testimony, and some of you guys know that. And the brief snapshot is homelessness, eight different alcohol and drug treatment centers later, every IV drug you can possibly imagine using. I finally found that my flesh was never, ever going to satisfy me. And in this moment of brokenness, decided I was going to sell out to the gospel and to Christ because it's the only thing I hadn't tried. And I realized this was true. It's not that I desired too much. It's that I was willing to settle for too little. I was much too easily pleased. So what does a person in that place need to do? I'm going to say two things, and then I'm going to let you go. The first thing that you need to do, if this is a struggle for you, the first thing you've got to do is glorify God. Now, we, we mentioned this scripture in our reading before service. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. To eat a meal is not sin. To have a glass of wine is not sin. To overeat constantly or to overdrink constantly or to obsess about social media constantly or to shop too much or to gamble or any of those other kinds of things that become a, a overindulgent matter of pleasing my flesh, those are the kinds of things that stop allowing me to glorify God in my life. Here's what else I like about this passage of Scripture. Just about any area of life you can imagine can be used to glorify God. It's all in how you approach it. Here are the three things I think you need to do if you're going to glorify God in any area of your life. The first is praise the Lord in that particular area. If we start talking about giving God glory and what that looks like, the first thing it looks like is praising the Lord. The two most important attitudes in praise are gratitude and humility. If I'm thankful for what the Lord's put in my life and I realize it's Him that's given it to me, not me who has earned it myself, it helps me remain thankful and grateful and give honor to God when it is His honor and glory anyway. And if I will have an attitude of praise about anything in my life, from the home I own to my bank account to the clothes I get to wear to my marriage to sex to food to vacations... All of those, if I'm praising and honoring the Lord in it, the enemy has to flee and the Spirit of God will rest on that particular area of my life. But some of you are caught up in the middle of those kinds of struggles today and you need God to help you uh, learn a measure of, I'm going to call this portion control, okay? So if, it's, if I know I've, I've eaten myself to the point where I've gained way too much excess weight or I'm shopping way more than I should or I'm gambling or I'm over-drinking every night of the week or ever or I'm, any number of things, lusting and, and my natural uh, mindset and struggle is to turn to sex, any of those areas, start praying about those areas in your life. God longs to communicate to His children. God didn't create you so you could live here on the earth and go about your struggles by yourself and he could be up in the heavens watching you and there's no link between you and him. God wants to communicate with you about your struggles and provide some guidance and some direction. Praise the Lord for the things that he's given you, but second, pray to the Lord about the areas in your life that you know you're struggling in. And the last thing I want to say is perspire for the Lord. 
It's really hard for me to overeat if I know that later in the day I'm going to be working all day in the 170,000 degree Louisiana heat, picking weeds and spreading pine straw and planting flowers. If we're busy for the Lord, the vices that the enemy wants to entangle us in are going to be much harder for him to entangle us in. So get up and get active, man. Lead your families closer to God by getting in the Word and praying and praising the Lord. Lead your church by getting involved in a ministry and encouraging somebody. Whatever you can do to perspire for the Lord will bring Him praise and glory and honor and increase your prayer life if you'll do it. I see these things as absolutely working together. The second thing I want to tell you, not just to bring God glory in your life as your number one most important priority, but the second thing you've got to do, surprise, surprise, is actually learn some self-control, ladies and gentlemen. All right, now, I could say this as self-mastery, which is kind of the term that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 6. But I like self-control and sticking with the theme this morning. So here's our text. I have the right, Paul says, to do anything. And he's talking to the church in Corinth, which is a church gone absolutely wild. They're having orgies. They're drinking in church, partying. They're suing each other. There's some very bizarre sexual things going on. And so Paul's saying, I have the right to do anything is what you guys say in Corinth. But don't you realize that not everything is beneficial? I have the right to do anything, but listen to this. I will not be mastered by anything. So there was a phrase that we used to say in our culture that might makes right. Might makes right. But today, that saying should be changed to anything I desire feels like it should be my right. That's the world we're living in now. If, I desi- if my flesh desires something and you try to tell me I can't have it, to me it's a right and I'm going to take a stand for it and I'm going to kneel for it if I want to or I'm going to uh, petition for it if I want to or what, whatever. It is. We live in a culture that has become so joyless and entitled and complaining and fatigued that if, if it's what I feel like I want in the culture at large, it feels like it should be my right. And that's what Paul's addressing here. I have the right, this is what the church at Corinth is saying, to do anything. And who are you to tell me I can't do what I want to do? And if I want to do it, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it how I want to do it, however often I want to do it, with whoever I want to do it with, and you're not going to tell me what to do. It's my right. And Paul's saying, hey, you know what? You have been granted freedom in Christ, but you are fools if you think everything is going to benefit you. And what Paul knew that they apparently didn't get is that if they allowed their pain to cause their sin, which led to their shame... Over enough time, eventually, they were going to be totally controlled and overwhelmed by those sinful things in their life. So Paul decided to become a slave to Jesus Christ. That's true self-mastery. It's not that you of your own strength have your own power. It's that you of your own strength can surrender yourself to the greatest power in the universe, the God who created you, and He can help He can help you overpower anything that is currently overwhelming you. So there are three things I think you've got to do to to really get some self-mastery or self-control. The first thing is you've got to start soon surrendering yourself to God. You've got to start soon. Now by this I'm meaning like immediately or sooner. Today, whatever that vice is that you overindulge, you have got to start glorifying God in that area. 
sex, food, alcohol, shopping, gambling. There are so many things that I could, uh, that I could mention here. Those areas have got to be surrendered over to God. And you have got to enslave yourself to the only master who can actually free you. Not only do you have to start soon, but you've also got to start small. Rome wasn't built in a day and nobody ever climbed a mountain by jumping all the way to the top. The first steps of any journey have to get taken one foot at a time. And when we start off, I think so many of us start off journeys in life with this momentum as though it's going to be a sprint and we realize it's going to be a marathon. This happened to me in the gym the other day. I walked in the gym and some friends challenged me to a workout and I'm like, I can do this thing in five minutes. And I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but 13 minutes later, I finally finished. Everybody finished before me. Why did they finish before me? Because they were treating it more as a marathon, not as a sprint. I walk in, and the first minute, I'm totally gassed. Waste every amount of energy I got. Everything is more labor-intensive after that. So my encouragement is to start immediately or sooner. Start today surrendering the areas of your life in which you overindulge over to the Lord. The second thing is to start small. Don't, don't think you've got to do these big, huge, gigantic things. If your prayer life is struggling right now, you don't have to spend two hours in prayer a day. You don't have to get up at 4.30 a.m. to pray. I am not a 4.30 a.m. prayer. And if you are, don't bother me at 4.30 a.m., okay? Don't be calling me saying, Lord spoke to me at 4.45. I'm going to be in REM sleep finally. And I don't want to be bothered, all right? Don't, don't spend, you don't have to spend two hours at 4, 3, 8. You know what you could do, though? You could spend three or four minutes of prayer time at one moment in the day where you block out all distraction and really try to connect with the Lord. That's what I mean by starting small. You don't have to read the whole Bible in a week. You might could re- read one or two chapters in a week and really feast on what the Lord has to tell you about that. Last thing I want to mention to you is start slow. Start slow. Pace yourself. Pace yourself for the whole entire journey, all right? And I promise, I couldn't have imagined that 14 years ago when, a, when an addicted, messed up, hopeless kid totally surrendered to Christ, that 14 years later I could be married to an unbelievable woman, have incredible kids, and a job that I absolutely love. Wouldn't have thought it possible. But I really believe that God could transform my life if every single day I tried to surrender to him a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And now I look back and I'm like, whoa, God has done something unbelievable in my life over these last 14 years. I promise you it didn't happen overnight. And I think that's where God has used some of my stubbornness to my advantage. So there is one benefit to it, babe is that I was just too stubborn not to go a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And pretty soon, you can get anywhere in life if you'll keep up the effort. So I I don't know where you're at or what you're battling with. I know you're battling with something because every single person under the sound of my voice is battling with something. And it's my prayer. I'm going to close in a prayer. And if, if your battle is intense enough that you need to confess that before the Lord and have our church pray over you, I just ask that you, that you come forward. I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to sing a verse of a song. And then uh, when, when, I fin- when, when that's over, we're going to dismiss. So bow with me, please. Precious Heavenly Father, I come before you so thankful, uh, God, for your word. 
and for the power that we can access when we realize we are powerless and that you truly are the source of all power in the universe, God. And I pray that if there are any under the sound of my voice who are overwhelmed and being controlled by sin, especially overindulgence, where there is something in their life that they've just become consumed with, I ask, God, that that you would empower them to come forward and to surrender that publicly to you and that they would begin healing and transforming from from that situation today. We love you, Lord, and we thank you, and I ask all these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me while together we sing.